Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We just sent the kids out of the room. You're welcome. Hey, you know, happy Mother's Day to everybody. And hey, listen, we recognize that today is a day to celebrate moms, and we, we wanted to honor you, Mom, this morning with that video to begin, and we hope you feel that. We really respect, appreciate you, and all that you have done for so many of us. We're grateful to have moms. And as Pastor Joel said, and I just want to reiterate, we know that not everybody has that story. Today's a hard day for some of you. You want to be a mom, and you have not been able to be yet. We want to honor that and respect that and just acknowledge that or you're a mom in a way that you weren't anticipating being a mom yet, and you are, and it's harder for you than you anticipated, we want to recognize and honor that too. Okay, so there's a whole lot of stories. We just want to say um, that we understand that, and we we appreciate you, and no matter what stage that you are in this morning, okay? I also recognize that there are several days in the year when you want the guy up front to be especially short rather than long, and that is when you have to get to a restaurant after church. Okay, true story, several years ago, we were here, and I decided I was going to take my wife out for Mother's Day, and um, by the time we were wrapped up around here, we're like, man, let's hit Red Lobster real quick. That was great. We got there. There was a three-hour wait, and we ended up at five guys. <laughs> Burgers and fries. Happy Mother's Day to you, right? So I just want you to know what's in your mind is in my mind as well, all right? So there you have it. Um, happy Mother's Day to you guys. <laughs> Um, I want to tell you, this is our last week on this series we're in. Next week, I want you to know we're kicking off a new series called uh, Anchor Point. Um, in that series, it's going to be basically us looking at um, who are we, what do we think about our identity, and how do we act out our identity. If you say that you're someone who follows Jesus and you want to be giving your life to things of God, the question is, what should you think like and what should you act like when the tough stuff of life comes? What do you anchor yourself to when everything else around you kind of challenges you to rethink some convictions about both who you are and what you do? So we're going to look at the writings of one of the disciples of Jesus, Peter. He was the most um, dynamic, charismatic, uh, flamboyant, uh, driven, up and down disciple that there was on one hand fully committed to Jesus, on the other hand fully uncommitted when he was felt threatened by a junior high girl around a campfire one night. And she said, are you a follower of Jesus? He said, no, 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 not me. He ended up writing a letter to an early church, and in that letter essentially writes about their identity in Christ and what that means. So we're going to look at that letter and, and really hit on anchor point. Who are we? How do we think? How do we act as people who follow Jesus from the pen of someone who went, up through, went through some ups and downs in his own life, okay? So that's next week. All right, this week we are finishing up our series called Jesus, What If? And the rationale for this series is essentially to, um, to have us pause for a minute to stop, to put a little parenthesis in our life and say, what if Jesus is actually God? And stop and think about that for a minute. What if he is actually God? What are the implications of that for me? Now, when I say Jesus, I don't mean just Jesus as an idea, as a moral teacher or, or good luck charm or anything like that. I mean Jesus as a real flesh and blood person who walked on the face of the earth. And the question is, what are the implications of Jesus' reality for me if I allow that he is actually fully God? Now, for me, I've gone through some reasons why I believe that he is fully God. Some of those are in the Bible. Others are outside of the Bible. The, the very fact that Jesus is not debated as a person. He walked the planet. Even the most non-Christian historian will say that. The question is really, what do we do with him and his claims? And so for a variety of reasons, I land personally on the, fact, on, on the belief 
that Jesus is God, fully God, fully man, that he actually came back to life, predicted his own death, and came back to life. So if you're there, um, here's some implications of Jesus, what if for you. If you're not there, these are implications anyway. You get to decide whether you believe them or not. So reviewing real briefly, here's where we've been in this series. During week number one, we basically said that if Jesus is actually God, then the resurrection changes everything about everything. That our life as we know it goes from birth until death, but the resurrection says what you thought was the end is actually just kind of a transition to a new life. And it changes, if that's true, it changes everything about how we spend just the little wee bit of time that we have in this thing called life right now. Because the reality is the resurrection breaks the power of death and says that there is a future hope beyond what we even see now. If that's true, it infuses hope into every little corner of our world right now. And it changes everything about everything that we ever see, okay? So that was week number one. If the resurrection happened, then it changes everything about everything. Week number two, we said if Jesus is actually God, then he sets the standard for what is true. And we had the conversation about truth. We essentially said that Jesus says there's both propositional truth, meaning principles, excuse me, and personal truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So it's not just that we come as people who say we're Christ followers and say there's a bunch of rules to follow, a bunch of propositional truth that you need to line up with. We believe that there is propositional truth. We also believe that Jesus himself said, I am the way and I am the truth. He's personally the truth of God, okay? Week number three, we said this, this was last week. If Jesus is actually God, then his ideas about what it means to be a Christian are better than mine. Um, and we talked about two different dynamics. Some people who say, um, everyone is a Christian like me. In other words, anyone who at all has any kind of moral compass, who hasn't killed anybody yet, hasn't robbed the bank yet, or hasn't done anything super wicked bad yet, um, and generally lives as good a life as they can, isn't everybody a Christian like me? You know, I live near a church every now and then I go, okay, isn't everybody a Christian like me? And we talked about the fact that Jesus says in Luke 9 that if you're going to claim me, if you're going to come after me, you're going to take up your cross and follow me. That it's not just enough to say at one point, I think Jesus is God. Jesus goes on to say, if you want to come after me, take up your cross daily and follow me. The emphasis on following. And we have to test ourselves against that reality. Then we went over here to this side and said, some people say, well, we know that not everybody's a Christian, but what we know is nobody's a Christian like me. No one does it right like me. I've got my set of rules that I follow. And for, for us, we went to Ephesians 2, 8, or 1, to, 1 to 9 and talked about that we are dead in our sins and grace saves us even while we're dead so that our rules are worthless before God and our rules that we hold on to to say this is why I'm a Christian are, are just a matter of um, complete waste of time and energy because God has reached us in his great kindness to save us, okay? So we talked about that, that between... The people who think everybody's a Christian and nobody's a Christian like me. Jesus' ideas about coming to save by grace through faith and asking for loving obedience and followership is a part of what it means to be Christian. Now, this week I want to go this way. I want to put it this way. This isn't ultimately what I want to say, but I want to start here. And that is this. If Jesus is actually God, then I should buy what he's selling. And here's, what I, here's where I want to go with this. Uh, just this past weekend was a great example of the power of endorsement and marketing within U.S. culture. For those of you who are sports fans at all, particularly fans of the National Football League, there was an event this weekend called the NFL Draft, which kind of went by the radar underneath for many of you. But here's what I found interesting about the draft, is that the draft tries to project 
future stars of, of the National Football League. And what they'll do is companies will sign these future prospects and say, if you get drafted and if you become a star, we just want you to know we have an endorsement deal for you. And they will sign an endorsement deal, a potential athlete will sign an endorsement deal with you name, you know, Reebok or, you know, Kellogg's or whatever it is, Colgate, you know, Under Armour, whatever it is, they'll sign endorsement deals, but it'll all be contingent on essentially the level of success and influence that you will have in the future. And so if you don't get drafted, if you don't kind of hold up your end of the deal and build a big enough platform to leverage this endorsement deal, it's just not going to happen. But endorsements drive our marketing culture in the United States, don't they? So when you're watching TV or when you're flipping open a magazine, if anybody still gets magazines, or if you're online okay, and going through and seeing advertisements pop up there, you will see people who know nothing about toothpaste selling you toothpaste, right? And you will see people who know nothing about deodorant selling you deodorant, right? People who know nothing about food selling you food stuff, right? And we just kind of all accept that's reality. Like someone paid whoever it is, Michael Phelps, to be a rep for Subway. Like we understand that. Like he may not actually like Subway. He probably knows nothing about running Subway, but he was a really successful athlete, really successful swimmer. And so we're going to leverage that and we're going to use Michael Phelps' influence, pay him a lot of money, and he'll sell subs for us. It'll be awesome. But we all understand the guy knows nothing about subs, but hey, there's Michael Phelps. We'll see him on TV. In a way, Jesus endorses something, something that we take for granted something that we interact with on a regular basis and is so much a part of our, our thinking and our culture that we, um, unless we stop to think about it, we will not understand the import of Jesus' connection with this thing. Jesus kind of, if you will, in, endorses or connect, is in a relationship with something that is so common to us that if I were just to put it out here and tell you, you'd be like, yeah, whatever, and you're going to check on, check out to the next thing. The relationship that Jesus has with this thing, to me... Um, makes a difference for me in this regard, that if Jesus endorses something, if you will, if Jesus stands behind something, uses something, values something, and I say that I'm a follower of Jesus, then it would be inconsistent and hypocritical, hypocritical for me if I say I'm a follower of Jesus. If he engages something, if he values something, if he does something, and I don't do that, then I have to say, then my values are not consistent with being a Jesus follower. And here's what I'm saying. Jesus has a relationship with something that we use every week, something that is downloaded constantly through the app store as well as whatever other phones use, whatever other devices that they use, all right? Something that is found in hotel rooms across the world as well as boardrooms across the world. It is the best-selling book of all time, and now you're with me, right? And that is the Bible. That there is a relationship between Jesus and the Bible that is unique enough for me to stop and say, if Jesus is someone who I think is God, and if Jesus has a relationship with the Bible in the sense that he has, for lack of a better term, if you understand the endorsement imagery I'm using, endorsed the Bible. I need to stop and think. If I say that Jesus is God, it would be hypocritical and it would be inconsistent for me not to share the value that Jesus has on the Word of God if I say I'm a follower of His. Okay. 
So here's what I want to say in truth. Not only do I buy what he's selling, but this, that if Jesus is actually God, this is it, then the Bible is more than a book. If Jesus is actually God, his deity, okay, meaning his godness, changes how I see the Bible from a book that is a best-selling book of all time, one of the great downloads on the app store is version app that allows you to read the Bible in a variety of translations, that the Bible becomes more than a book if Jesus is actually God. And there's a connection and a relationship there that I don't ever want you to lose. No matter what stage of life you're in and what you are facing, my hope for you, if you say that I'm a follower of Jesus, is that you will be convinced of that relationship. You'll be convinced of that and see that Jesus, if I say he's God, and he values the word of God like that, if I say I'm following him, and I don't want to be hypocritical, I might need to rethink how I see the value of the Bible for me. Okay, So, if you have your Bible, I invite you to begin to turn there with me to the book of Matthew, because what I'd like to do with you is just walk through a couple of sections of Scripture this morning that essentially show to you how Jesus used the Word of God in his life. Jesus didn't have what you and I have right now in front of us. I don't know what you have in front of you if you're listening online later, if you're on the computer or on your phone, or you're sitting here this morning on your tablet or your phone, or you're you're using a Bible from, from the pew in front of you or your own paper Bible. None of that was accessible, as accessible during Jesus' time as it is for us. But Jesus still validated the scriptures as we know them. And I kind of want to show you what I mean by that, just to kind of lead you through some of this. So this morning will be different in the sense that we're going to just read through several different passages. But what I hope this will do for you is help you to see how natural and intuitive the the ministry of Jesus was based on the Word of God. So Matthew chapter 4, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, um, and Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to begin this morning. I'm reading from the NIV, Matthew 4 verse 1. The context here is Jesus, um, the temptation of Jesus with with Satan. So Jesus, um, here we go, we'll read in verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, in one of those three words, yep, that's right. It is written, okay, it is written. Now the question is, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, (laughs) the first temptation is, Let's go get something to eat. And I'm just telling you, my first thought is not going to be, let me quote a Bible verse to you. (laughs) Right? I mean, seriously, would that be your first thought? Are you kidding me? 40 days and 40 nights, and someone's like, I got some bread for you. What do you got? Well, let me tell you a Bible verse. I mean, I'm like, sure, let's do it. So here's what It is written. So just intuitively, Jesus is like, it is written. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hmm. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For what? It is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so the devil is quoting back to him and saying, all right, if you're going to use the Bible, I'm going to use it too. And here we go. So if the devil knows the Bible, it might be a good idea for Jesus to know it as well. Verse 7. Jesus answered him, it is also written... Do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Okay. The first context where Jesus is like constantly coming back to the words of God as a truth. And we're going to stay in Matthew and go through three different passages this morning just like this. So Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus is speaking now and he's saying, hey, do, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And when he uses that phrase, law or the prophets, he's referring to what we call the Pentateuch, the last, um, the five books of the Old Testament in particular. The law is, is that five books of the prophets would be the prophets written about in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, those guys, right? So he said, don't think that I've come to abolish or get rid of the writings of God that you know. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he says in verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is just saying again, listen, do not think that I've come to get rid of the old teaching. You don't need to just get rid of the words of God as you know them. I haven't come to get rid of anything. In fact, I know them and I'm here to fulfill them. Okay, so he goes on um, into Matthew chapter 22. So flip over several pages. To Matthew chapter 22. Jesus continues to interweave the Old Testament writings that were had at the time into his ministry. He's speaking to, in this case, the Sadducees. These were a religious sect or group who didn't believe in the resurrection. They really struggled with that. And so the Sadducees come in verse 23. That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. And this gets kind of confusing, so don't worry. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Kind of weird, all right? Verse 26. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her, and this was their big trump card, like, you need to help us figure this out, and this is why we don't believe in the resurrection, because it just complicates relationships, and this will never work. Because not only are there two people that she was married to, there's seven, and so if you get resurrected and you're back with your spouse, what do you do? We can't believe it, so Jesus, you tell us. And he replied, you are in error because you do not know the, what? Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like angels in heaven. But above the resurrection of, excuse me, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? In other words, the scriptures. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Why were they astonished? Because he used the scriptures, the words of God, as a part of his ministry to teach people about who God was. He continues in verse 34. Now the Pharisees decide, well, you, Sadducees, they're not as smart as we are. So verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees get together. 
And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And, and Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Again, I'm coming back to all the law, all the prophets, all the scriptures that you have, I'm giving to you and saying this is what they hang on. And here's the thing. When you look at Jesus' life and his authority, it came not just because he did miracles. People were not just believing in him because of that, although that certainly drew a crowd. Jesus' authority to teach the crowds were amazed not only because of his miracles, but also because he leveraged the word of God for the people. He knew the words of God and the word of God, and the people were like, wow, there is power in what I should have known. You're telling to me things that I could read for myself, things that are in the law and the prophets, and the way that you're explaining them, I'm like, I am brought to an amazement of the God behind those words. And so Jesus is endorsing, if you will, married to selling the value and the authority of the word and the words of God throughout his ministry. That's is why he says, I think, in John 17, when he's praying what we call the high priestly prayer, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is truth. In other parts of the scriptures, both in Matthew as well as in Luke, Jesus affirms the validity of Old Testament characters, all kinds of Old Testament characters, Noah and, and Adam, Eve and others, Moses. He, he affirms the reality of all these people and who they are, and they are a part of his ministry. After the resurrection, some of you may remember in the Gospel of Luke, um, he's walking down a road. It's called the Emmaus Road, and some of you know what happened there, that he's walking along, and he had already died and come back to life. But some people... Two disciples were walking along the road, two followers of Jesus were walking along, and they're just kind of down in the dumps, kicking the dirt with their sandals, like, oh, shucks, you know, Jesus is dead, what are we going to do? And Jesus comes by, and he walks with them for a little bit, and he ends up talking with them. And what Luke records is that he walked them through from the law and the prophets all the way through the scriptures to show them that what was said about him was true. And so how did he convince them? How did he persuade them? but to go to the word of God that was available to them to read and to have and to study that they didn't know, but was there. And Jesus used and leveraged and was related to and endorsed and sold, if you will, the value and the authority of the word of God. And now this, if you're thinking with me, you're like, okay, I can believe that because, well, it's in the Bible, if you're a Bible-believing person. Now, if you think further with me, we have a little bit of a problem, and that is that Jesus endorsed the Old Testament because the New Testament, frankly, wasn't written yet uh, when Jesus was around. And so just for those of you who are detail-oriented or who might think about this later on, um, you think, wait a minute, what about the New Testament then? Here's what I want to say. In the New Testament, Jesus' teachings form the foundation of the New Testament. So if we believe Jesus is God, his teachings are that authority that form the foundation of the New Testament. I also want to say this, that very, very, very early on in the formation of the New Testament, I want you to understand that the early, very, very early church began to see the writings of what we have as the Bible, as Scripture. And this happens particularly with Peter when he's writing, and he is writing in 2 Peter, and he refers to Paul's letter. So check this out here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Peter is writing, and he says about Paul, his letters, meaning Paul's letters, 
contains some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Okay, so in other words, if you can't ever understand the Bible, you're not alone. Peter was there right with you. As they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Isn't that an interesting thing? Isn't that interesting that Peter, writing in the, in the early church time period, would all of a sudden say, Paul's writings are on par with the other scriptures, meaning the law and the prophets and all that has been held throughout Judaism to be true and authoritative word of God. So I want you to know that what you are holding in your hand, what you see, what you access is the best thing we've got for the authoritative word of God that Jesus endorsed, related to, connected to. And so if I'm going to say that I'm a follower of Jesus, here's the thing. I've got to figure out what then do I do with the word of God, with the Bible. If Jesus endorsed that and his authority came from teaching and communicating that word of God, if I'm going to say I'm a follower of his, how inconsistent and hypocritical it would be for me, not also the value, get to know, be engaged with the word of God that he knew so well. Now, where are we at today with the Bible? A couple of things I want to say with that. The Bible today, um, here's what we know. A lot of people own a Bible. American Bible Society, just in 2014, did a nationwide survey in the United States. These are only U.S. statistics. 90% of us own a Bible. In fact, they would say that we own, on average, 4.4 Bibles. I'd like to find out who owns the .4 uh, Bible, but some of you own maybe a .4 Bible. I have an old Bible, an NIV study Bible that's falling apart. Perhaps that's it. I have a duct tape together on the binding. Maybe that's what they mean, all right? So 90% of us own a Bible. Now, let's carry on the the data here. 80% think that it's sacred. So most people who own it think, like, this thing is actually pretty neat. Like, there's something almost magical or mystical about the Bible. It's not just another book, but it's really kind of neat. And 61% are probably like you. I wish we, I read it more. I mean, you ever feel that way? I just wish I read it more. I, I may have told you many years ago, I found some New Year's resolutions that we had done as a church body, and the number one resolution across almost the entire board was, I need to read the Bible more and pray more. I mean, that was just it across the board. That was, that was it. So most people are like, I've got one, I think it's worth it, and I don't read it a lot. Lifeway Research in 2012 did a survey, and they found out that 19% read it daily. 19% of the people who own the Bible, actually read it daily, which, if I'm honest, is higher than I thought it would be. So I thought that was actually relatively good news for us. So here's our situation. A lot of people own it, few people read it. And so it made me think like this, and I want to show you this little thing right here, okay? We have in our home a couple of teapots. I'm not a tea drinker, but I wanted to show you these because I think it's neat. Number one, this is a teapot. You can see this, and if you're listening online later, I'm sorry that you can't see this. What I'm holding in my hand is a pottery teapot made by a friend in Barbados, um, handmade with blue, green, yellow kind of paint on it, glazed over. Um, You hear that? It's real. I'm afraid I'm going to break it. This thing we have had, it's a beautifully handmade thing. When you all did like ceramics in art class, anyone make this as a fifth grader? Right? Okay. So here is a handmade teapot. If you were to have a couple of these, none of them would be exactly the same. They're all uniquely made. And even the spout, if you want to call it that, is not quite perfect. Excuse me, there's dust in there. (laughs) How about that? Happy Mother's Day, Jen. Sorry about that. All right. 
But even the spout is not made perfectly because it's handmade. I mean, someone, I don't know, stuck their finger. I don't know what you do to make that, but I didn't make that. This is a beautiful little thing that was given to us as a wedding gift, um, I think, or we stole it when we were down at the pottery in Barbados. I don't know, one of the two. So we've had this for like 16 years now. And I just want to tell you, when you have come to our house, if you have ever drunk tea, you have never drunk from this thing. Because we haven't actually ever drunk from this thing. We don't actually ever use this thing. We like it, but we stick it right on top of the piano that we have. And then we put the little, there's a sugar and maybe a uh, milk thing right next to it. I don't know what, even what you put in. Creamer, right? There we go. Sugar and creamer thing right next to it. And it looks really nice. And I value this. I do. I, and we in our family value this. So when we think that there are balls being kicked in the direction of the teapot that we don't use. I mean, what do you think? We're like, no, don't do that in here because I value this thing. I think that it's almost kind of sacred-like because I understand what it means and I really think it's beautiful. Now, this thing over here, see, I'm even afraid of where I put this teapot. This thing, isn't that nice? Stainless steel teapot, that baby works. We use this regularly. I like to drink iced tea and um, we'll brew it, make the the water hot in here and then pour it in and get our, our tea brewed. This thing we use regularly. There's just not a whole lot special about this guy. I mean, you could find things like this. Look, see, it's even got some burn marks on the bottom. Clearly been used. We use this all the time. When we think about the Bible, for many of us, and here's what the survey says, many of us think it's sacred. Like, it is valuable to own. It is nice to have around. And we think that there's actually something special about it. Like, there's almost some power in it. But it's valuable to own, but not really valuable enough to use regularly right and this is what the data tells us this is what reality tells us that we'll we'll own things that we really do honestly think we will say they're valuable and if you were asked the question is the bible valuable or important to you you would probably say yes and it's not necessarily inconsistent to say but i don't ever use it because i don't ever use this guy but i still think it's important to me My problem comes for me when I say, is the Bible for me going to be more like this beautiful teapot that I think is highly valuable, or this one that is also valuable, but it's just usable? Which one is more valuable? In truth, which is more valuable? And I'm going to have to say that even though this one is kind of irreplaceable, this one in truth is of greater practical value to me because I use it regularly. So for many of us, we like to own the Bible and think sometimes just by owning it and having it and being near it, it kind of rubs off of me, kind of gives me something. But I'm just telling you, there's a difference between valuing like this and valuing in the practicality of this. So let me take this a little further because here's where it's easy to go and here's where it's easy to go for me into the so what. Um, it's very easy right now for me to go down a line of let's uh, lay down a little bit of guilt on everybody here to read the Bible more. And isn't that what I'm going after? Everybody should just read the Bible more. I mean, if you're thinking it all with me, you might even be feeling kind of guilty about it already. Like, oh, I've tried so many times to read and I haven't done it and whatever. I failed in this reading plan and program. I want to take you to another imagery quick, another illustration. That is of flossing. How many of you are avid flossers? Seriously? (laughs) What's wrong with you guys? Don't you know that flossing is good for you? 
Now, how many of you are like me? How many of you, when you go to the dentist, you floss at least once before you go to the dentist? Come on now, come on, give it to me. Come on, come on, what do we got? All right. And then what do you do when the dentist cleans your teeth and they're like, man, you must have been flossing. That ever happened to you? And then you just lie, right? Absolutely, because I flossed one time. I have been flossing. I flossed on Tuesday. It's now Wednesday. I mean, absolutely, I've been flossing. So here's the thing. We know that it's a good idea to floss regularly, don't we? Yeah, come on. There was like one or two of you who raised your hand that you floss on a regular basis. That's awesome. Good for you. The rest of us are like, we just don't, we just don't do it. And so the question is, what would get you right now, practically speaking, what would get you to move from, yes, I believe it's important, to actually I'm going to do something about it? A couple questions. Would enforcement do that? In other words, if, you, if I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to enforce it every week. We're going to come in. And I'm going to ask the question, how many of you have flossed this week? What does that do for you? It kind of cuts the heart out of flossing, doesn't it? Just go with me on this, all right? Or doesn't it cut the heart out of it? I mean, you don't actually want to do it because you want to do it. You just want to do it because I'm enforcing it, right? And where's the life and joy in that? It's not there, is it? Now, is it a matter of you need to learn more about the dangers of not flossing? Would it be helpful if I showed you pictures of like green teeth, right, and corroding gums up here and told you here's what happens when you don't floss and all the little things that get in your teeth and how your mouth is going to fall apart and no one's going to like you because you don't floss? Would that help you? You know, probably not. That might change a little bit. You might floss for a little bit longer when you leave the dentist's office if he gives you those pictures. But in truth, you're going to forget that. It's not about learning more about flossing. That's not why you don't floss. Is it a matter of your commitment? Man, I need to sign a 30-day flossing pledge with my dentist. Can you imagine that? Leaving the dentist's office, he's like, hey, we got something for you. We've got a new pledge card for you, 30 days of flossing. If you do that, you know, you'll get a, whatever, I don't know, your lifetime supply, floss, from whatever. I'm kidding. Now, that might help you floss for a little bit longer, but in truth, you know, and I know, that commitment to flossing will ultimately wane, won't it? And so what is it that will work? Now, play this out with me. This is going to be funny. Play this out with me. But what if? What if all of a sudden you got in a group of friends who love to floss and love to talk about flossing? What would that feel like? Really weird, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that conversation? Hey, good to see you this morning. How was your weekend? I mean, how did the flossing go this weekend? Did it go well for you? Yeah? Hey, you know what? Sometimes, you know, I've been fighting with circulation in my fingers when I get the flossing wrapped around. I mean, how are you solving that issue? We talk about that. Hey, have you tried the new flossing flavor? We got, you know, mint over here. We got banana over here, whatever you got. All right. Have you tried the new thing? And we just start talking about flossing regularly, and man, it just feels so good. You know, I remember when I got the thing out of my had corn in the cob, everyone had corn in the cob, and we just can't get the corn out in the back there, and, you know, and finally I got it out, you know, I got that result, and it felt so good. Can you imagine? Okay, really weird, right? Can you, really weird. But can you imagine? Now think about this, play this out. What would happen, though, if your friends just started talking about flossing, and you didn't floss? Might that help you? Might that help you begin to see that there is value practically, daily, regularly in doing something that I already know is important? Might that not be 
the best case scenario for you to make a lifestyle change that you know in your brain is a good idea, but in practicality no one makes time for. If you had a group of flossing friends. And is not the parallel the same for us? And this is where I'm going with this. I can't tell you how much um, my heart for years has been kind of cut out by the duty of enforcement, of saying, you've got to read this much or pray this much or give this much. And the life of Christianity gets cut out when someone stands up and says, you need to do whatever, this much, this much, this much. You need to be sure to get through this much, this much, this much. And the hard workers in us is going to come out and say, yeah, 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 I'll get on that, I'll get on that, I'll do that. But ultimately, you know that's not going to take. You just know it's not going to take. Here, here is my hope, and I decided to write it out this way because I couldn't shorten it at all because I'm not smart enough to know how to shorten it. My hope for you is this. My hope for you is that no matter where you are in life right now, that you will surround yourself with people who help you stay engaged with the truth of the Bible. My hope for you is no matter where you are in your life, no matter what stage of life you're in, if you're in junior high, if you're in high school, if you're graduating from stuff and moving on to the next stage of your life, and you're ready to tackle the world and the issues with that, if you are dating and you're thinking about getting married at some point, or you're dating and hoping to find the right person, or if you're just newly married, or if you're having kids or trying to, or if you're midlife and you're not sure where the early life went to and kind of depressed about where you're at, or you're kind of on the other end and you're kind of facing health issues that are tough, and family stuff that's not quite right, you're wondering about that and kind of your future, no matter where you are in life, my hope for you is that you will surround yourselves with people, with friends, who will make it their habit and whom you will help in this regard too, to continue to engage with the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the word of God. Not in a guilty way, but in a helpful way where the conversation might say something like this, hey, you know what, I don't know. I don't know how to help you with that, but you know what? I've got a small group we meet regularly. Why don't you come and join that? We regularly stay in the scriptures. We regularly pray and encourage one another. Come with us. We're part of a church. We have a medium-sized group we call a Sunday school class. And we're, we don't have all the answers, but we're asking the questions. And we're studying together. We're trying to get after who is God and how does this work. I'm part of a church. And they teach the scriptures regularly. And here's where it's at. I'd love to do a personal Bible study with you. I'd like to pray with you, just meet with you, encourage you. Have lunch, coffee, not even a major event. But have people around you. And be the people around others who say, you know what? How can I help you stay engaged with the truth of God? Because at the end of the day, if Jesus is God, and he endorsed the authority of the Word of God, if he's selling, if you will, the authority of the Word of God, then the Bible becomes much more than a book. It becomes the authoritative Word of God that changes you and changes me. And the more I pull away from that, the more I think it's irrelevant or boring or don't have time for, it's too hard to get into, the more I just pull away from that, then the more I tend to drift and wander around what in the world is true. So my hope for you this morning is not that I guilt you into a short-term response to this message, that I guilt you into reading your Bible for 30 minutes a day or five minutes a day or a minute and a half a day. I don't want that for you. That'll work for a little while. But long-term, no. Long-term, I hope for you, no matter where you are, that you will say, it's important enough for me 
because I believe Jesus is God, he believed in the authority of the scriptures. That's important enough to me. I want to be around people who are helping me engage in the truth of the word of God on a regular basis. And that will help me grow to be more and more like who this Jesus is that I say I believe. That's my hope for you. Jesus, what if? What if he actually is who he says he is? If he is, not only does it change everything about everything, it also changes the fact that the Bible becomes more than a book for you and for me.